Hey everyone, grace and peace to you all from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is Monday, June 22nd, and on the podcast today, we have Eugene Cho. Now this podcast was recorded last week, slated to come out on Conversation Friday, but because it was so poignant and um, so in the moment, I really felt like, man, this would be an amazing follow-up to Sunday's sermon. Yesterday, I taught a sermon called No Justice, No Peace that came out of uh, last Sunday, two Sundays ago. I was at a peaceful protest march in the Bayview District of San Francisco put on by African-American pastors in that neighborhood. And of course, this phrase was being chanted, which led me to think, uh, could this could this phrase be a good sermon illustration or maybe a sermon in itself, which led me down the road uh, to the Old Testament prophets? And could would this uh, phrase find its, could it find its home um, in the prophecies or the prophets of the Old Testament, which obviously turned into that sermon that I gave yesterday. Now, coming out of that sermon, I would imagine there's all kinds of questions like, what does it look like to get involved in justice? What does it look like to get involved um, and, uh, you know, in, in any sort of work that we're not just praying, but we're actually act- acting as well? And um, is our world as bad as, as you made it sound? These are all really good questions, and Eugene answered a lot of them in our time together, which is why I wanted to save it for today. Eugene Cho is a founding pastor of a very influential large church in Seattle. He resigned, or retired, I should say, a few years ago. And uh, starting next month, July of 2020, he will become the president of the Christian advocacy group Bread for the world. He will be working with, in Washington, uh, with Congress, with um, the administration to advocate for uh, the poor, marginalized communities in our nation, in our world. So it's a very important uh, post position that he'll be serving in, and he is the right person for this job. So here is my time with Pastor Eugene Cho. Okay, so Eugene, I think I'll start here. Um, is there, is there, with everything kind of going on in our, our world? I mean, we don't. We, that that would take a year to even explain. But what's the like bare minimum for Christian civic engagement? Well, how would you answer, respond to that? Like, what's the bare minimum? How do we get? What's the bare minimum that Christians should be involved in our? Uh, politics or what's going on in our city or what's going on in our nation right now? Well, first of all, thanks again for having me on your podcast. Secondly, I have no idea what you're talking about. Everything is peachy and cheery and perfect. I thought we were going to have a good conversation about the Warriors basketball upcoming season and the draft, but... Or fly fishing. You know, yes, that's right. Yeah, that's right. No, this is a, it's a hard question because as all of us know, things feel so tumultuous right now. And I don't know if there is a single answer. Hmm. And what I, what I mean by that is I don't want to make it so prescriptive. Hey, this is the exact thing that you should do. And if you don't do it, I'm going to use fear, guilt, or shame. I'm going to cancel you because I feel like that's also in the air and that needs to be discussed in some way or the other. But I do feel like maybe a place that we start is to care. I, mean, I think as Christians, compassion, empathy is not an optional thing. 
Now, what that looks like each for each of us in our lives, that could look different because I think we have different gifts, different leanings, different inclinations. But so when we care, and I think we should also acknowledge that it shouldn't just be caring to the point of our comfort zone. So there's going to be places that we have to lean in and be stirred and disrupted, but it's hard to really do anything beyond consuming if we don't care. It's got to impact us in some ways. I feel like for many of us, I'm like pointing to my head right now. I think we're gathering information in our heads. We've got a couple talking points from a few podcasts, from a few books that maybe we read. And those are good things. It's good to be informed. But I'm also wanting to encourage Christians to have the events that go on around us impact our hearts in such a way that there's this convergence between heart and mind. And that's what really impacts us to consider how then shall I respond? How then shall I live? Yeah, I think that's so important. I just, uh, my wife and I just watched uh, Just Mercy, the Brian Stevenson movie. Uh, it's free everywhere, which is like, that's how important this film is. It's free everywhere. <laughs> and um, and this is kind of what I love about it is like, it makes you care and empathize with people who are unjustly imprisoned. And it, and I think from that point of empathy and care, how do I then get involved? Like you said, I love what you said, in a place where it kind of moves us beyond what we're comfortable or what we're beyond, even if it moves you to learn more, even if it moves you to like engage more deeply. Um, I think you put your finger on it. It's the consumerism. I think we just, because we're so consumeristic, we think we just kind of consume some information and then we're good, but moving beyond. How have you... What would be like from care to moving beyond? What have you seen as a pastor and even in your own journey, that next step of like from care to like engagement? Sure. What does that look like? Yeah, yeah that's a great question because I think obviously if we want to elevate compassion, it does matter. But we don't want to just end right there because I think what compassion does is it gives us kumbaya feelings, gives us good intentions, but we need to act. And so – a few practical things come to mind. Number one is to commit to learn. Knowledge is power. And so we've got to learn. And no matter where we might be in our journey, there's always things for us to learn. I read this one article a couple of years ago, and it was really alarming. And they were suggesting in this article that post-required education, whatever level that might be, the average American on our own, we read about two books for the entirety of our lifetime. I mean, that's shocking and alarming because I think it speaks to the fact that we just don't find time to learn and to grow and to be educated. Now, there's so much resources out there, whether it's books, whether it's the internet, whether it's movies and film screenings and whatever it might be, but really commit to learning. The second thing, this is, sounds a little bit awkward because it might sound like it's antithetical to action. We actually have to carve out time for contemplation and digestion. Because there's so much information. Like a few weeks ago, I had to just stop everything that I was doing because I was choosing without even knowing, overwhelming myself with so much data, information, podcasts that I didn't have time to digest what I was actually listening to. So it wasn't just emotion. It was exhausted emotion, which is actually really dangerous. Sometimes I feel like I make some of my more foolish leadership decisions or personal decisions when I'm either 
overly emotional, and then you add exhaustion on top of that. So I would actually say we need to be intentional about carving out time to digest. I think a more accurate spiritual term is what does like spiritual contemplative activism look like? where we're praying, where we're seeking counsel, where we're reading God's word, where we're choosing time to fast, where we're understanding that the, what's going on around the world, as crazy as it might sound to those who are not Christians or non-spiritual, I mean, I see it as principalities of power and darkness, good and evil, in addition to everything else that's going on. So we also kind of need that perspective, even though it's hard for us to say, this is exactly what it is. I think the third thing that I would I would say is um, also care with our resources. So the three big resources that I think we should talk about is time, our talent, and our treasures. Just a, a nice little clean cut, you know, three words of acronyms to help us: time, talent, and treasures. So where are we choosing to volunteer? Uh, because maybe it is needed in places. Maybe it's good for us. It's both. It's it's synergistic. Uh, our talent. Some of us have talent that organizations and causes might really find incredibly valuable during this time. And then lastly, you know, it's the big idolatry of our world, I think. It's our resources. I think we should choose to prayerfully, thoughtfully, strategically invest in resources. Just for full disclosure, I've chosen to invest in a few places during this time. I love investing in like churches in specific communities that are being impacted, oftentimes led by pastors and leaders of color who are going to be there when the protests leave, when newscasters leave, and when the news cycle goes on to the next thing. And so not to say that churches and leaders are the cure-all and the end-all. I just think that they have credibility because they've been there and they will continue to be there. And then the last thing that I'll just say is kind of a, a, a nice summation of what I shared already. It's just what does it mean to be in solidarity? So we're choosing to come alongside. We're not leading. We're not coming in here to like mansplain or Asiansplain or whitesplain situation. But we're choosing to come alongside particularly people that have been in that journey for a long, long time. That's what it means, I think, to be in solidarity. You care, you're choosing to invest your resources, you're choosing to digest, and you're choosing to basically say, hey, I'm not in it for a short sprint, but I'm going to be here for the long haul. Yeah. Wow, that's so good. I'm so, I want to digest that. I want to pause this and digest that, take that in. Hmm. I was reading, I think, uh, last year, early this year, I was reading that, that book, Deep Work. And in there, it was talking about how uh, when we take in information, we need to like stop and go for a long walk to like contemplate what we think about what we read. So we actually develop our own thoughts around what we read. And so I've been trying to practice it. I'll read something, digest it, and then go for a long walk. And like, what do I think now? How are my thoughts being shaped by what I just read? But I think you took it a level deeper. Contemplative is that what is God? How is God forming me and forming my character around what I just read or digested? which I think is like another level, which I think is beautiful. Um, so the next question would be like, you know, as a, as a pastor during a time of unrest, which is where, where we're at right now, how do you, how do you work not to create uh, additional labor for members of marginalized communities? For example, right now, there's a lot of focus on the black community. 
how do you avoid creating additional burden for members of your congregation from that community? Because I know that you've been in this work for a long time, seen unrest kind of, you know, come and go, like flare-ups come and go. So how have you done that in the past? And even how would you speak to that now? Well, the first thing that I would say is, you know, um, maybe speaking to you and myself specifically, uh, let's always pastor our people during these times. Like, make sure that as we're dealing with flare-ups and particular cultural upheavals, everyone needs a pastor. And one of the things that I love about Reality San Francisco is the fact that uh, pastoral leadership is never dominated by one person. I love the way that you guys really just distribute care and concern, not just for those who are on staff, but it's really the concern of the whole church. So again, I think sometimes the balance between pastoral and prophetic, both are so important. Sometimes I think, in my opinion, my concern with churches and leaders is that we elevate the pastoral aspect, but we abandon the prophetic call. Or sometimes we're so committed to the prophetic call and we're like out in the streets protesting, marching, which is good, but we've abandoned the pastoral commitment. I think we need to have both of these things and hold them as faithfully as we can. But as you're speaking to the question about those who are particularly impacted, we just have to name it and acknowledge it. Uh, and not to say that everybody responds in the exact same way. And I think this is part of what we have to keep learning again and again and again. There isn't a single monolithic voice that represents, in this case, all black and brown people. Like I know as an Asian American, I have a particular lens, but I want to be careful that I don't represent all Asian people. So that's part of the reason why there is this burden, because when these things flare up, we go to our black and brown folks and say, hey, how are you doing? Even if our intentions are good, we just have to name and acknowledge and give room and space for people. Uh, and so what I always do is I simply say, hey, I want to check in with you. I want to give you absolute permission. Please don't feel obligated to respond or say anything. I just want you to know I'm here if you want to talk, if you want to pray. Um, sometimes we have these prayer meetings, and again, the intentions are good, but we place people's pain and trauma as the center of that prayer meeting. And again, the intentions are good, but can you imagine centering someone's pain and trauma and marginalization as the focus of a prayer meeting. And so as a result, it could feel that much more burdensome and exhausting. Here's what I'll say, because someone that's listening to what I'm saying right now, they might feel really confused. And the answer is, it's not easy. It's actually really confusing. Um, this is why I think relationships really matter. Like if we're beginning our relationships and conversations right in the middle of this moment, um, I don't want to slam anyone. It's probably not the best place to start that relationship. So there's got to be so much around it so that there is buffering and margin and some space and grace. Even if that means somebody of color in this case might say, I know you're not going to take this uh, personally or you're not going to be offended by it, but please don't speak to me right now. And we can receive it and not get upset because there's relationship and vice versa. Um, so I, I would just say, because uh, this is a not a moment, I think there is something significant going on, but there's going to be ups and downs through this whole time. And so what we do, not just at the zenith of upheavals, but what we do Monday through Saturday, every single day, 
it's going to really, really matter. Thank you. That was a beautiful answer, especially the relationships part, because um, I think a lot of people will, because of this moment, go like, okay, I want to learn. And then they go after, you know, whatever. I want to be your friend or I want a relationship. And like, that's such a good word. Right now is probably not the best time. Um, the ones that you have, stoke those through prayer, through like reaching out, through like no obligation, but I'm here for you and I'm with you and I'll give you rest and I'll make margin for you, whatever you need. And then commit to it for the long haul, like build relationships. Relationships is the key. That's so good. Um, you brought up uh, being Asian American. How, how, what have your conversations around specifically Asian American, Asian Americans engaging in current anti-racist conversations, protests, education, actions been like? Like, what are some things that have stood out to you as Asian Americans engage in this moment? You know, that's a, a fascinating conversation, but I think especially from your context, Dave, because you're pastoring in San Francisco, very multi-ethnic, and not just multi-ethnic, it's very heavy with Asian American voices and influence. I grew up in San Francisco, you know that. It's one of the reasons why I love San Francisco. And so a few thoughts have come to my mind about this because I've been asked this question now from a few places. Number one, May happened to be AAPI month. It was the suckiest Asian American Pacific Islander month ever to my memory because I felt like no one really talked about what was going on because of coronavirus and because of so much of the anti-Asian abuse that has been going on as a result of COVID-19. And that's a different podcast in itself because, man, there have been thousands, thousands of documented cases of verbal and physical harassment and abuse that has taken place here in the United States and around the world. So there, there's that situation. And then before you're able to digest what's going on with COVID-19, Asian American kind of anti-sentiment, uh, and then obviously Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, uh, George Floyd happens. And we want to be very, very present in those things. So a couple thoughts come to my mind. One, I think, is that this is, this is going to be really heavy and intense, but I'll just share it because maybe for some people it might be uh, worth noting. The relationship with Asian Americans and African Americans are very, it's very interesting. It's very um, precarious, in my opinion. There's up and down situations. As a Korean American, it's very intense because of the LA riots in 1992. Because one of the catalysts that led to the LA riots was a situation with a Korean grocery store owner in Los Angeles where a Korean grocery store owner shot a 16-year-old girl in the back because she thought that this girl was stealing something from the grocery store. And there's a little bit more nuance and complications there but it was brutal. She shoots this girl in the back. The jury finds this lady, her name is Sun Jadu, guilty of murder, of manslaughter. And then this white judge basically says, I know a murderer when I see one and she's not a murderer. And she overturns the jury's case. And it just, I mean, and that's part of the reason why uh, Koreatown in LA was targeted and why so many businesses were lit on fire, looted, pillaged. I mean, we're talking not just damages to stores, but lives were lost. And 
it also gave rise to grocery store owners who I can cer certainly empathize with because my parents were grocery store owners in San Francisco. These business owners then realized that the cops weren't coming into their neighborhood to K-Town to protect them, and they had to fend for themselves. And so you see these images of Korean merchants with guns and rifles on their stores in front of their, and they're just shooting left and right. I mean, it is chaotic. And then the whole city is burning down. And it has been, for some people, the image of the relationship between African Americans and Korean Americans, and in some ways with Asian Americans as well. And so there's been a lot of repair that, needed, that ha has needed to be required over the years. And so one of the concerns or one of the comments that we get from our African American brothers and sisters is where is the solidarity from our Asian sisters and brothers? Why are you so quiet? When you, as a person of color, you understand some of the tension, some of the systemic racism, when you know that these things are taking place, why are you so silent? So if we're speaking about white privilege, there's also this conversation about the privilege of Asian silence. Uh, it's the terminology, the Asian privilege, Asian silence privilege that we use. And so for me, because we're not necessarily fighting against specific people, right? It's so important for us as Christian leaders to say, listen, we're not fighting against specific people, but we are fighting against systems and structures, including racism that is antithetical, contrary to the kingdom of God. And so therefore, we've got to speak up and be in solidarity. The other complication of this whole relationship with Asian Americans, and I suspect that many of your church folks who are of Asian background will know this, is that we're often used to perpetuate the Asian minority myth complex, where we're often used by oftentimes like in the white structure, people will look at Asian Americans and say, why can't you you being African-Americans or Latino-Americans or indigenous people and say, why can't you be like Asian people? Asian people is proof that racism don't exist, that if you simply do these things like them, work hard, be quiet, be passive, whatever it might be. And so it puts Asian-Americans at times in a very difficult space. But we understand that racism exists. We understand that particularly as Christians, We've got to be speaking up. And I think one of the ways that we can do it is that we can be, again, both uh, prophetic, but again, let's not abandon the pastoral call as followers of Jesus. Mm. That's a documentary in itself, man. I'm sorry. That's a lot of stuff. <laughs> no, I, I, I just want you to keep talking about it. I know that I know we only have a limited amount of time, but that is so important just to call out like all of that, all of the intertwined, intertwined stuff that is America, all of that layering of historic pain and all of that is so, uh, so important to call out, to own and say, we see it, this is reality. And we want to see the, the power of, of Christ uh, level, tear these walls down. And um, yeah, so, just even yeah, naming so the, is so important. Yeah, and I think by naming it, and I think in some ways this is the kind of um, the, 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 the crux of how people look at situations differently with George Floyd, eight minutes, 46 seconds. In this situation, right, everyone, 
everyone has been in full agreement that what transpired with George Floyd was absolutely egregious, heinous, and wrong. I was so encouraged that Fox News comes out. I thought they were even that much more emphatic than the other news sources by saying, this is horrific, this, this person should be uh, sent to jail, all that kind of stuff. But I think from a larger population, we still see that scenario differently. Some see it as an isolated eight minutes and 46 seconds of police brutality. And then there are others, particularly of black and brown descent, who look at it not just as an eight minute and 46 seconds, but they see it in this bigger picture of a landscape of 400 plus years. And that's the reason why I think history, we should all be fans, not fans, we should all be students of history. We should learn. And so I want to just name, because it's rare for me to do this, uh, I want to name that 16-year-old African-American girl who was shot. Her name was Latasha Harlins. She had just turned 16 years old. And one of the most profound signs that I remember, I was just a first-year student at grad school and seminary in New Jersey when I'm watching the news on TV on, at that time, my mammoth 19-inch CRT RCA humongous TV that weighed 200 pounds. But I, I'll never forget just crying in my dorm room, watching what's going on. And there was a sign that I'll never forget. It was during a rally by Korean Americans. And the sign simply read, you were wronged. We are sorry. And I think it speaks to, and, and I think this Korean American woman had that sign because I think it reminds me that oftentimes the work we have to do is not just speaking to the other side, it's speaking to our own, it's speaking to our people. So for you and for myself, like I feel like our job, not completely, but our job is to speak to the church. Well, we've got to disciple our church. We've got to disciple Christians. And so, but in our culture, you know, as you know, the Republicans are just only condemning Democrats. Democrats are only condemning the Republicans. We're basically just, it's, it's a shouting match to see who can outdo each other with our anger and outrage. And so in the midst of all this justice work, there's got to be some really important internal, personal work that all of us have to do during this time. Thank you. I, I don't, I want to keep talking, but I want to respect your time as well. And Eugene, you're such a gift to the body of Christ. You're such a gift to um, our country. Uh, and um, I'm really grateful for you and what's next for you. And um, uh, I love the, the friendship that's budding between us. I respect you a ton. Thank you so much for saying yes. And just spending a few minutes with us going really deep, really fast. A lot to, I think we should be, should pause and then contemplate this and get before God and just, Lord, what do you want me to learn? And how do you want my heart to change to match your heart? Amen. Amen. Peace to you. Thanks, brother. <laughs>